Hello everybody and welcome to Into the Prey, our teaching sessions, City of Temples. Let's dive straight into the text. We're now in verses 35 to 50. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This passage is incredibly dense and rich, and so I'm not going to be able to pull out of this, even in a couple of weeks, this week and then next, enough to do it justice. There's just so much. And so I'm wanting to move through through this at a fairly surface level, but I'm hoping that as I've soaked in this and spent time studying and so on, that it will be enough to whet your appetite and to get you to dig into the into the passage. We're obviously fast coming to a, a conclusion of the whole book and I'm hoping that at the end of it, it won't be a question of just leaving the letter and saying goodbye to it, but it would be a question instead of, of going back and reviewing and especially when I do a final review of the whole study, but then produce this study document. I hope that it will be a passage of scripture that you'll return to time and time again. And this is, as I say, the crescendo of the book in, in many ways. Not that there aren't other crescendos throughout the book, of course there are, but this is the great resurrection crescendo, isn't it? So um, so we'll see how we go. And my intention is to try and, as always, to speak from a place of preparation, but also to bring that which is very live, if you know what I mean, very current in my heart and in my mind, Sometimes that is off topic. Sometimes that is not necessarily prepared and is more spontaneous, but I want to get the balance of both. So last week I touched on this connection that was 
talking of things live in my mind, the connection between 1 Corinthians 6, the little passage that I mentioned there, and Luke chapter 8, the account of the demoniac. Jesus exorcising the the legion of demons. Um, I put a correction note into the show notes after recording just because I had misspoken and said about 12 demons. And of course, there's no evidence to, sh- to show how many demons precisely there were other than the self-confessed name of the demons, which were collectively legion. So that might suggest thousands rather than what I'd said. So all that to say is maybe go back and listen to that last week's if you'd not um, heard that and if you've not made these kind of connections in my mind with where I'm going between 1 Corinthians 15 as we're in now and just with a, an overview kind of concept of what happened with the demoniac and being clothed, being that oneness of the Lord, hence those verses in 1 Corinthians 6, 15, our bodies are members of Christ. Did you not know that? Paul said to the Corinthians and then in verse 17 of chapter 6, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Those kind of stunning thoughts. And I was talking about the demoniac being clothed in his right mind, sat at the feet of Jesus, that kind of thing. But I'd mentioned about this question being a foolish question. Verse 35 of our passage today, how how are the dead raised? And reminiscent of Galatians, where Paul had addressed the Galatians as being foolish. Similarly, Paul's response is, you foolish person, in verse 36. So he didn't, Paul didn't regard the question, how are the dead raised, as being a valid or wise question. On the contrary, a foolish question. And I had suggested that I was going to go through just some points as to why why was that question foolish? And that's what I'm going to do today. And as I say, see how I get on and, and maybe go into next week as well. Um, so firstly, Paul regards the, so the seven things I'm going to go through here. But just before I get to the point one here, just to say firstly that Paul had said, hadn't he, in verse 34 of last week, to he had described the Corinthians as drunk and he told them to wake up. If I can just pull it up here, you can you can hear the verse again, verse 34. Wake up, said Paul, from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. That was the concluding verse of two weeks ago. So Paul firstly regards this question as coming as, as an intoxication of human flesh and folly. Um, and he slams it, doesn't he, in verse in that verse I've just read, as a sinful disregard and disgrace for those who have no knowledge of God. The perishing, in other words, that's the the type of language in our passage today. Those who are lost, in other words, and that the Corinthians, being foolish in this way, with no regard for the lost or for the perishing, was shameful. And so the call to action from Paul was last two weeks ago was to wake up. Recognize your sin, these weird baptismal practices, this disconnect between your profession of faith, the things you say you believe, i.e. no resurrection, and yet doing the things that actually would rely on a resurrection. So this disconnect, he's saying, wake up, you're drunk, sober up. And I think actually in many ways that's a that's the call to action for the church at large, isn't it? To sober up, sober up church. And then secondly, that it was it was so it was a hu- intoxicated human fleshy kind of folly 
sinful, but it was also spiritual folly, wasn't it? Like the like the spiritual blindness of the disciples in John often. How often in John's gospel did Jesus talk about himself or the things of the kingdom and his disciples just didn't get it? You know, of course, there was the blindness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and whoever else, but there was also the spiritual blindness of the of the immature kind of the, those he loved. And I think in some ways, the Corinthians, not all of them, but this letter was to address divisions and immaturities and foolishness, foolishness and so on. The Corinthian Christians were behaving as though they were unsaved. You know, not believing in the resurrection back in chapter 11, meeting being worse than not meeting, eating the Lord's Supper, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper because they were being idolatrous and because they were being selfish and so on and so forth. So they, they, and this is, again, it's a, it's a clarion call for the church at large. Sober up, church. Stop acting as though you're unsaved. Start behaving like you're saved. We can't expect unsaved people to act saved, can we? We can't expect our unsaved neighbours or unsaved family or friends to behave as though they were regenerate. But we can and we absolutely should expect that for from professing Christians. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 5 of this letter? A shocking verse. I wonder how well this will go down with many seeker-sensitive churches today. Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Bearing the name of brother meaning someone who professes faith in Christ. Do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So this is profound folly, and it's intoxicated at the human flesh level. It's just sinful, it's just inconsistent, contradictory, but it's also this spiritual foolishness and spiritual um, blindness. So, so the question from verse 35 when Paul says in the very beginning of our passage today, how? but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Why is that question foolish? We know that Paul immediately slams that in verse 36. Why is that foolish? So the seven things here, and these are the seven things that I'm most likely not going to get through in, in, in their entirety because of the density of the passage. So let me give you an overview. Why was this question of the Corinthians who were behaving as though they weren't saved, drunk, and not sobered to the reality of those perishing. Do you remember what verse 34 in a previous week, those who have no knowledge of God? Why was this a foolish question? Well, here, here are the seven things that will steer us through this quite dense 15 verses. They were Firstly, they were ignorant of death and rebirth. So there was no understanding, evidently, or little understanding of the gravity or necessity of death. Ignorant of death and rebirth. Number two, they were ignorant of transformation and the vast dissimilarity between seed forms and what they become. That's the, the, the kind of examples that Paul gives. So ignorant of death and rebirth, ignorant of transformation. Number three, seeds have different bodies. Number four, not all flesh is the same. Number five, not all glory is the same. Number six, the atoms are infinitely different. And then finally, number seven, heaven is not yet. So I'm hoping to cover all those all those seven in the next couple of weeks. Not sure where we'll finish today. Pryor says, Our physical bodies, ideal for this earthly existence in spite of their mortality, will be useless 
in the perfection of God's kingdom. They need therefore to be buried when their work is done so that from such raw material, God can produce a spiritual body perfectly suited for inheriting the kingdom of God. We're thinking about bodies, we're thinking about seed, we're thinking about perishing and and, uh, being raised. Pride goes on to say, there is no way this decay, this cycle of birth, pregnancy, birth, uh, living, aging, decay, ultimate death, and so on. There is no way this decay can be halted. It can only be buried. J.C. Ryle says, I grant that if there was no such thing as sickness and death, if men and women never grew old and lived on this earth forever, the subject of this paper would be of no importance. But you must know that sickness, death, and the grave are sad realities. But you must know that sickness, death, and the grave are sad realities. Remember Jesus' words in John 12, 24. I'll come back to this again later, and I'm mentioning this throughout because it's so relevant. Remember what Jesus said in John 12, 24 for your notes? Just remind yourself of, of that in his own words about himself being lain, rested into the earth as a seed. Psalm twenty two fifteen. my strength, this is King David speaking in a messianic psalm, one of the uh, messianic psalms. Psalm twenty two fifteen. my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So there's this uh, recurring embedded reality within creation that God has made resurrection, the, pe- the imperishable to only come via death, only via the laying into the ground of the seed, only via the process of of human death and aging and so on and so forth. Um, just a very quick aside on that, Psalm 22. Why is it messianic? Well, because it was David that wrote it, but it was prophetic in the sense of it being um, uncannily the experience and reality of Jesus himself, hence messianic. That's why David was a prophet and not only a king or a shepherd king. So more verse by verse now looking at these seven things. Firstly, verse 36. Why why was this a foolish question? Why were the Corinthians being foolish in a similar way to the way that the Galatians were? Because, because they were ignorant of death and rebirth. They were ignorant of death and rebirth. Verse 36 again, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. The the, the Corinthians evidently thought that spiritual resurrection was without spiritual rebirth or that somehow that was possible, that spiritual resurrection without that that, uh, John 3 reality, you must be born again, was possible. Um. You know, we just thinking back to that weird baptismal practice that that Paul was saying was sinful. In the case of the dead, and they were being vicariously baptized for, they had died, hadn't they? The people that had that they were being baptized for, they died. So, what kind of death was Paul talking about here? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Well, it's the kind of death that he's talking about here was. Rebirth, wasn't he? The kind of death that happens while you're still alive. If you die and you're not reborn spiritually, it's too late. 
So they were foolish for that reason. Remember, do you remember Galatians 2.20? This is after he'd said about them being foolish. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I, I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the miracle of rebirth. This is what it means to be born again. This is the kind of phrase that might be mocked by the world, but is absolutely essential for the kind of resurrection where we're in oneness with Jesus, sharing in his sufferings, but also his resurrection. If we're not reborn, we won't be sharing in his resurrection. So there's no life without death. A seed doesn't become anything unless it's first buried buried into the ground. And again, just for your, just I suppose just for our ears, John 12, 24, again, Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, unless that happens in your life, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So at least the re- for the first thing, the ignorance of death and rebirth here in this person asking the question is that it's foolish because even nature teaches, doesn't it? Even nature is teaching the, the need for a seed to fall into the ground and die in order for, for resurrection. Think of a seed as, a, as an embryonic plant enclosed in a protective outer covering. You know, we'll think in a minute about a bare kernel in the next verse and thinking of the demoniac, keep the demoniac in his naked state, sat on the floor and the dust and the, the painful stones and the self-harming and so on. The seed is an embryonic plant enclosed in a protective outer covering. And so if there isn't this death where that protective outer covering is replaced, the, the perishable with the imperishable, there is no bearing of much fruit in Jesus' words. And there is no coming to life unless it dies in the words of Paul in our verse today. And just again, before we move on, 1 Peter 23 to 24 Quoting Isaiah 40, verse 6, this is again where we can't go into all of it for time, but since you've been born again, there's that phrase, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, and so on and so forth. So just keep these passages that are uh, good for study in mind and in your notes. Only an imperishable seed will be raised to newness of life. Passage here, which is very important, Colossians 2 Let me just read it to you, verses 11 through to 15. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That's the new, the old is gone, the new has come, the new creation in Christ. John 3, being born again, the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power of powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is Colossians 2. So our first point here, this question in verse 36, you foolish person, is foolish because of the Corinthian ignorance of death 
and rebirth. And to ask ourselves, therefore, the Corinthians didn't highly esteem spiritual rebirth. Do we? This is a rhetorical question for our own reflection. The church that you're in, do you think it highly esteems spiritual rebirth? The church that you're in, is it clear that people have been born again? Our responses that are put down as being new new responses, new decisions for Christ or whatever, is it clear that there's a new birth? Is there fruit in keeping with repentance? You must be born again. The Corinthians didn't highly esteem that, evidently. Do we, is the question. Number two, why was this a foolish question? Because they were ignorant of transformation. And of course, this relates to what I've just said. Verse 37, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So again, Paul using this language that perhaps he knew that Jesus had used through the oral tradition being passed down. He knew what Jesus would have said through the apostles in Jerusalem. Think of that bare kernel there. That phrase caught my attention when I read it, thinking of the naked demoniac in his death-like state, his his perishable state, possessed by a legion of demons and dwelling amongst the, the, the tombs and the wilderness and self-harming. And, you know, so this bare kernel of, of perishableness, perishability, whatever the word is, compared with this naked demoniac sitting naked on that floor, uh, spiritual death and Adam and so on. We'll come to the Adam uh, analogy in a moment. He was as close to, this is the demoniac, was as close to the dust of the earth as he could get without being buried alive, naked on the floor. So this this emphasis of transformation here, again seen in the demoniac, in, in him being delivered from being in the state that I've just described into being clothed, what a beautiful image that is, being clothed in his right mind and then sent on into the Decapolis as an evangelist in the words of Jesus, to tell everybody how good God had been to him. This is transformation. This is radical transformation in keeping with new birth. If you haven't listened to Amy's testimony, please do so. We put that out on Good Friday. You can go and listen to a, a testimony of rebirth and of radical transformation. So what is sown into the ground is not is not what is reaped. It's changed. Something miraculous has happened. And God has put this again within nature, thinking again of a seed as an embryonic plant in plant form with an outer shell. Do you remember Jesus' words in the parable in Matthew in the in the, in the parabolic section in Matthew 13? Jesus said he put another parable before them. This is Jesus. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Okay, so there's that image again of death. Why does a farmer put a seed into a field? Why does he lay seeds into the ground to die? It's to reap a harvest, isn't it? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. So the Corinthians were ignorant of transformation here. Paul is emphasizing that, again in verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, 
What you put into the ground is not what's going to come out of the ground. And Jesus in Matthew 13 uses the example there of the smallest of seeds becoming a larger than a larger plant than all the others of the garden. So there's a there's a radical dissimilarity here between what's sown and what's raised. Radical transformations. And so the question for us is the Corinthians didn't have a vision for transformation. The Corinthians didn't have, they didn't highly esteem spiritual rebirth, do we? The Corinthians didn't have a vision for transformation, do we? Number three, why was this a foolish question? Verse 36. Well, because seeds have different bodies, and this is what we learn as we move through this dense passage, verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Seeds have, seeds have different bodies. Do you remember the language of Paul in chapter 12 regarding the gifts of the Spirit? He gives the gifts according to his will. Verse 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these gifts are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually three words, as he wills. We don't get to choose the body allocated for seeds, do we? Well, part of the world today thinks it does. We don't get to choose the body allocated for seeds. We don't get to choose the resurrected bodies for those who've already passed away into death, Corinthians. Why are you being baptised vicariously for these dead people? We don't have that power authority. This is not the gospel. Galatians, who's bewitched you? You started off so well. You started running the race so well. Who's, who's cut in? Who's sown weeds among you? Who has enticed you away from the childlike simplicity of the gospel. Any other gospel is to be accursed. It's anathema. So seeds have different bodies. The demoniac, thinking back to him in Luke 8, had a different body to the pigs. Pigs have pig bodies. Men have human bodies. Lions have Lion bodies. Listen, girls have girl bodies and boys have boy bodies. We don't get to choose what bodies seeds have. God decides what the seed will produce. You can't put potato seeds into the ground and expect an apple tree to result. You can't expect to go through obscene, horrendous human surgery and expect to change the contents of the seed of a, of a little boy or a little girl. Bodies complement seeds. So this is the mystery that we're talking about here. Seeds have different bodies, and I'm going to come to the point in a minute about God's sovereignty, but bodies complement seeds because God's sovereign, and in his wisdom, he has made it so that certain seeds result in certain bodies. Boys have bodies that God has intended them to have to complement the seed of masculinity that's within them. The same is true of women. Women have the types of bodies and more than just physical bodies, the, the, the makeup of our psyche. God's made it to be like that for women to complement the way that women are. I could argue and would argue that the redeemed have different bodies to the unredeemed. Think of the, the nature of the, an old school word that the, 
men of bygone eras now really have, have used to use the regenerate. Talking of Christians, new birth, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old is gone, the new has come. We're regenerate. We're the, the redeemed of the Lord say so. Regenerate versus those who are lost, those who are perishing, the unregenerate. Is there a difference in our bodies? Well, you bet you bet you bet and bottom dollar there's a difference. Think of people who testify to being delivered from alcohol. We heard that testimony last week from Amy. Delivered from drinking alcohol unhealthily. Other people I've known in the past, and I'm sure you've heard your own equivalents, you know, people who are delivered from drugs, the power of uh, pornography or of betting addictions or of food addictions, whatever it is. Something happens in the body of those who have been redeemed. It's not the resurrection body, but it is different. Do you remember with this in mind, 1 Corinthians 2.15, when Paul says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So there's a distinction there between a spiritual person, that's what I'm saying, that's what I'm describing as a regenerate person, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The implication being there that the unspiritual person is unregenerate. And just to say very quickly in passing that gender dysphoria is a problem. The demonic loves, Satan loves transgenderism. And we better not be ostriches putting our heads in the sand, pretending it's not a problem. This needs profound wisdom and profound pastoral care and spiritual power to address. Not the obscenity, the abhorrence of human surgery, trying to change the seed, trying to change the body. That in God's sovereignty, he has designed and created lovingly. And so the question for us, why is this a foolish question? Because seeds have different bodies. And so therefore the implication being, the Corinthians didn't have a vision for God's sovereignty, do we? We're, we're facing these questions through the Corinthians' folly. I think the, fo- the folly, the foolishness of the church today, the drunkenness of the church today is being highlighted through the drunkenness of the Corinthians then. The Corinthians didn't highly esteem spiritual rebirth, do we? The Corinthians didn't have a vision for transformation, do we? The Corinthians didn't have a vision for God's sovereignty, do we? Moving into verse 39, fourth reason, why is this foolish? Because not all flesh is the same. Verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Not all flesh is the same. The ancient Greeks considered some animals to be sacred. We know that Back in ancient Egypt, in the pantheon of gods, there was this kind of uh, maintenance of thought that the Greeks developed that into their own pantheon of gods and had this thing called zoomorphism. In other words, where animals represented the sacred or the divine. So if you think of the the, the kind of gods, the small g gods of ancient Greece, the likes of Zeus or Poseidon or Artemis or Apollo, you know, all these temples in our city of temples, this is why... There were so many temples because there were so many gods, so much idolatry because there were so many gods. And he had this, this relationship of animals to gods. So Zeus would have been known as with the eagle and the bull. 
Poseidon would have been linked with horses and dolphins, Artemis, deers and wild boars, and Apollo, cows and snakes, for example. So the list goes on and on and on, all the gods and all the different animals. And so there was this, this thing called zoomorphism, okay? And Zeus was... Zeus was the god of, I don't know, thunder, a bit like Thor, I suppose, in urban myths. But god of the sky and the thunder, think of him like that, who later, um, he was the, the kind of the archetype of classical Greek pantheonism. But just doing a bit of research on this, I found it very interesting. Back, I don't know how long ago it was, 10 years ago, there was a remains, a child... Um, skeleton found on this place called Mount Lycaon, which is in kind of think southwest of Corinth. Just to find it on a map if you're interested. Now, this is the place that was linked with Zeus and sacrifice to Zeus, and of course, it was synonymous with animal sacrifice. But this is where this child's child skeleton was found in recent years. So there's a very deep, dark, demonic connection here with these ancient civilizations and we know that from passages of passages of scripture where child sacrifice was commonplace paul says no animals have one kind of flesh and another and humans another just going back to verse 39 for not all flesh is the same is that that's what paul's saying not all flesh is the same but there's one for animals Another for birds and for fish, and one kind for humans. This is part of the reason, again, not deep diving into any of this, all of it now, but Levitical law, if you read the book of Leviticus and the laws surrounding the priesthood and the incorporated worship and so on, and how all these individual laws relating to different animal types, in other words, different flesh, and all of these things, what what was God's sovereign design behind all of that, saying, for example, you shall... You shall, you shall eat this and this and this, but you can't eat that. This is why to, the, to this very day, some Jewish people don't touch pork or prawns, for example. But within this, did the Corinthians have a vision of human life as sacred, as distinct from animals, birds, fish? I don't think the the Corinthians fully understood this. They were in the city of temples in which human sacrifice most likely happened to the likes of Zeus or to other demonic strongholds. It beggars belief, really, that this is all needing to be explained to the Corinthians, especially because, as I've said before, that they were supposed to be Christian. Did they have a vision of human life as sacred? Do we? And that touches on how do we, how are we moved by the abomination of abortion, the commonplace practice industrially of abortion? Do we think about it? Do we pray about it every day? Do we stand on the street and be willing to be mocked and reproached? Do we talk about it with people in the gym? Do we talk about it with people where we go out for coffee? Do we talk about it with our family members who... Who, who kind of claim some kind of spiritual interest but don't give a, any kind of awareness of, you know? The Corinthians didn't have a vision of human life as sacred, I don't think. Do we? This is all relative, of course. 
but God's standard is God's standard. So let me just quickly recap. Why was this question, verse 36, foolish? Because they were ignorant of death and rebirth. Do we highly esteem spiritual rebirth today? Number two, because they were ignorant of transformation. Do we have a vision for transformation, an expectation, a hope of transformation today? Number three, because seeds have different bodies. The Corinthians didn't have a vision of God's sovereignty today. Do we? Number four, because not all flesh is the same, Corinthians. Did they have a vision for human life as sacred? Do we? Finally, five, or not finally, but number five, because not all glory is the same. What if verses 40 and 41 say, there are, this is Paul continuing this train of thought, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. Again, Corinth, this dark, spiritually dark, demonic place would have been filled with superstition, spirit, fake spiritual practices. The city of temples filled with that, the world today filled with that, the church infiltrated, perhaps in much larger part than we would ever have thought, with idolatry, false religion, false doctrine, false eschatology. How much, what percentage of the American evangelical church are premillennial dispensationalists? And I think there's a parallel here between this, the heavenly bodies and the earthly bodies, the glory of the heavenly and the glory of the earthly. I think there's a parallel here between the, what we've said earlier about the perishable and the imperishable seeds. Not all glory is the same, Paul is saying. Not all glory is the same. And he goes into great detail, doesn't he? he go, he's making the point that there's a, a difference between the kingdom of God and of earth. Any kingdom on earth is not to be compared the glory of Egypt or the glory of Corinth, the glory of any of these civilizations is not the same as the glory of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, for your notes, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. I think ultimately Paul knew, thinking of the heavenly bodies and the earthly bodies, the realm of the heavenlies versus the earth, the eternal versus the temporal Paul knew that for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's 100% saturation. It's not waters that cover the earth, which is about 75% saturation, but rather waters that cover the sea. That's 100%. So the earth, Paul knew from Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And remember back to two weeks ago where Paul named and shamed the Corinthians as being, they should be ashamed of themselves because they were impervious to the fact that they were surrounded by people with no knowledge of God. Not all glory is the same. And so Paul knew that and that this prophetic hope. One day that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters to cover the sea. So to ask ourselves a question, the Corinthians weren't jealous for the glory of God, the knowledge of God, that they were shamefully disregarding, just like the shame of chapter 11 of this book in the way that they were meeting together and having the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians weren't jealous for the glory of God, are we? Penultimately, number six, because foolish because 
the atoms are infinitely different. This is a longer passage that I won't read here, but if you, for your study, verses 42 to 47, Paul goes through, again, the analogous thoughts of the new Adam, the first Adam and the second Adam. Um, and he's pulling us... So if you look at just verse 42 there, what does it say at the beginning of this kind of section within a section? So, it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead... Let's just read back the last verse, so verse 41. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. And then in verse 42, so so is it with the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is pulling us back to the context of this passage, the context being resurrection. And there's these, if you look at these different um, pairs of contrasts here, you have, again, the perishable, in verse 42, the perishable versus the imperishable. Then it goes on to the dishonor versus the glory. And it's interesting that, isn't it, that you don't have dishonor versus honor. This is this is going back, I think, to that dissimilarity of transformation. What is sown is not as, the same as what is raised. There's a disproportionate difference between dishonor and glory. You'd expect dishonor to be compared with honour, wouldn't you, in verse 43? But it's not. Paul says dishonour is raised in glory. There is an infinite difference here. This is not just an upgrade or an advanced package or an add-on or a bolt-on. This is, this is glory. This is the difference between full saturation of the earth and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And you take my point. What is sown in dishonour is raised not in honour but in glory. And it's similar in in the way that weakness and power are contrasted here. It's not weakness and strength. It's weakness and power. And again, there's a dissimilarity there between those two contrasts, I think. The natural and the spiritual. In verse 44, this is the resurrection of the dead. That's our context, he says in verse 42. So So is it with the resurrection of the dead. And then he goes on to say, verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And again, there's an infinite difference here between these two realities. The issue of order here is important. The natural is first, Paul says. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So we we need to understand that as the seed being laid into the ground, Jesus himself in John 12, is first the natural. And then what? The spiritual, the disproportionate, the radical transformation, the resurrection. It's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. And of course, I think, as I've just said, that's another way of saying what Paul has already said a number of times in this passage about the seed needing first to be sown and so on. Verse 46, again, is worth just laboring here, but it is not the spiritual, but it is that is first, but the natural and then. Those two words struck me. I don't know if you've seen the film Gladiator and this the motif, recurring refrain motif through the film with Maximus and his friend, his slave friend, and there's this 
tension in the film and then even at the very end for the slave himself once Maximus has passed away and in in the thought in you know in the sense of the film he's been reunited with his murdered wife and child this tension between the now and the not yet and the verse there's something of that here in verse 46 but it is not the spiritual that is first but the natural and then The now and the then, I think, are radically dissimilar in the same way that dishonor and glory are radically dissimilar. Or the smallest seed of a mustard seed plant is radically dissimilar to the tree that it becomes, the king that's likened to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. I think this and then, this thought of the future grace, the future glory to be revealed in us, feels very distant and hazy and obscured a lot of the time, not just in the evil world, but I think particularly because of our perishable bodies, because of our limitations, the aging process, the pain associated with that, the prospect of death, the the prospect of loss, bereavement, separation, The Corinthians didn't have a right view, I don't think, of ageing and death, do we? Do we have this hope in the imperishable clothing that we see powerfully, I think, pictured with the demoniac in Luke 8? Do we have a living hope? Does that affect how we approach death? Does it influence, does it totally dominate how we look at death in the face, knowing that it's been in Revelation 20, if you read the first seven or eight, ten verses of Revelation 20, has been has been destroyed. This is why it comes back to the, the burden, I think, of prior. I haven't really read prior this week, but in previous weeks where he talked about our facing the reality and absorbing the implications of the resurrection. Perhaps the litmus test of this is most powerfully assessed as we view death more closely, as our bodies feel more perished, as the bodies of those who we love most become more perished, our own bodies included. Finally, final point, and I've managed to get through to this. Heaven is not yet. Why is this a foolish question? Because heaven is not yet. Just just as then today there are great fake emphases, false teaching, false religion, in effect, false, false Christianity that wants to major on heaven being now. We're living under an open heaven. You can be healed from anything. And if you're not healed, you need more faith and you just need to pull your, your faith socks up. Well, there's nothing new under under the sun. Let me just read these verses in closing. Verse 48 to 50. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Um, and as is the man of heaven, that's Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. That's our imperishable hope in the face of death, in the face of weakness, in the face of dishonor. You think back to those couplets in verses 42 to 47 verse 50 and this is the Greek, the 
the real kind of linchpin here, I think, of this passage is, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Not every resurrection is going to be the same, is it? Not everyone, even if you Corinthians have baptized your mates on behalf of those who've already passed away, not every resurrection is the same. Not every resurrection is unto eternal life. Heaven is not the same as hell. And heaven is not yet. And Paul has alluded to Adam in the Garden of Eden before in this passage in, in the book, and he does it again here. This contrast between the man of dust, thinking of the demoniac as well, in the dust, literally naked on his bottom on the floor. Thinking of Adam, thinking of where we've all come from. We've all born, we all have born the image and many, many of us still do bear the image of Adam as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Are you of the dust today? Are you in Christ today as you hear me? Are you confident in being reborn? Are you confident in radical transformation? Are you confident in having passed from death to life? This issue of assurance is a very important one. And... The image of the man of dust, sorry, verse 49, just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, original sin, total depravity, etc. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, our ultimate future resurrection. When, where is it? It says somewhere, doesn't it? That when we see him, we will be as he is. All those who have longed for his appearing. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Corinthians. If your friends have passed away without being reborn, the door to the wedding supper of the Lamb, as it were, has been closed. The perishable does not inherit the perishable. So just in closing, I think that's having moved very quickly and that's to the best of my ability, gone through it. There's so much in that. I'd encourage you to go away and study it, spend time praying in it thinking about those those seven questions. And again, this is just for a summary overview. Why was this a foolish question in verse 36? I think the passage that Paul unfolds shows that the church there, in this city of temples, they were ignorant of death and rebirth. They were ignorant of transformation. Seeds have different bodies. They were ignorant of that. They were ignorant of the fact that not all flesh is the same. Not all, not all glory is the same. The atoms are infinitely different and that finally heaven is not yet. I'd mentioned last week about um, this, this concept, or it's not a concept, is it? It's a reality. It needs to be far more. It needs to be infinitely more than a concept. This reality of in Christ, being one with Christ, the verses in, in, do you remember in chapter 6 that I mentioned last week and at the beginning, chapter 6, verse 15, Chapter 6, verse 17, these staggering truths that if we're not careful will wash over us and we won't allow to sink into our inner man's. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I'd emphasize that clothing of the demoniac and our clothing in rebirth, thinking of Gideon and Samson and so on. I mentioned this Brennan Manning, not, not endorsing everything about Brennan Manning, but I'm endorsing this book to be read. It's worth that, the furious longing of God really helped me about 10, 15 years ago. And let's listen to this quote. 
Brennan Manning says, words such as union, fusion, and symbiosis hint at the ineffable oneness with Jesus that the Apostle Paul experienced. The ineffable oneness with Jesus that the Apostle Paul experienced. And then he quotes what I quoted earlier, Galatians 2. 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Manning goes on to say, no human word is even remotely adequate to convey the mysterious and furious longing of Jesus for you and me to live in his smile and hang on his words. But union comes close, very close. It is a word pregnant with a reality that surpasses understanding. The only reality worth yearning for with love and patience. The only reality before which we should stay very quiet. Cease striving and know that I am God. Quoting Psalm 46. 10. Our bodies are perishable on this earth. And if you think of Ephesians 2 and Paul talks in there of those who are in the world without hope the unregenerate, as I mentioned earlier, those who are not saved, those who are lost, those who have no knowledge of God. There's no shortage of those people. And we need to have an awareness of the infinite difference between the perishable and the imperishable. As we read through this passage, as I mentioned last week, there is a hope in being raised with Christ. Remember that verse in 1 Corinthians 6.14? And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. This resurrection is the Lord's first and foremost at Calvary, of course, but as we then are in him in faith, in Christ, we have the prospect of this resurrection, this glory, this dissimilar, this radically dissimilar transformation, the twinkling of an eye. There's so much to say here, but I want to just read a prayer that I wrote as I was preparing this earlier. Oh, Jesus, where we're weak, naked and dirty, like seeds, like the demoniac. How often is that true for us, for you? Wherever you are, whatever stage of life this finds you at, whatever your current season is, so to speak, where we're weak, naked and dirty, like seeds laying in the ground, come and clothe us in the knowledge of who you really are. Give us compassion for the perishable bodies and souls we're surrounded by every day. For whom the only prospect of resurrection to fire. Holy Spirit of God, make your people wise in the knowledge of heaven and hell, of salvation. That our hearts would burn for sinners to turn from their wicked, perishable ways. Strengthen us, clothe us, cleanse us by the knowledge of who you are. I pray especially, Lord, for folk today whose relationship with death or aging or perishing is not what you want it to be, that's not entirely laced, completely saturated with the hope of the imperishable, the hope of the glory that comes from dishonor, the power that comes from weakness. Lord, I pray that that would be a revelation, a revelatory moment for folk today listening, that this head knowledge, the theoretical ascent towards this resurrection, Lord, that we would feel that in our bones, that we'd feel it in our hearts, that we'd feel it 
in our muscles and in our minds. What reality is it to be clothed in oneness with you, Jesus? What glory is this to be joined to you, becoming one spirit with you? Bearing the image of the man of dust, we should also bear the image of the man of heaven. Lord, I pray that this hope, this resurrection glory, this resurrection power would so permeate our thinking, our practices, our prayers, our gatherings, the decisions that we make. Lord, I pray that we would be like beacons blazing for the sake of the perishable. That there would be many more stories and testimonies of imperishable stories as a result. We pray, Lord, fill your people with the reality and implications. Let us absorb them of your resurrection. We acknowledge you, Lord, now just as much as we did last Sunday. You are risen. You are risen indeed. And Lord, we just rejoice in that today and pray that the implications of this would truly, truly direct our every thought, our every word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.